think again. Let me take this opportunity to express my personal regret for the violence in Kisur involving Blackwater employees in 2007. The United States is determined, determined to hold accountable anyone who commits crimes against the Iraqi people. While we fully respect the independence and integrity of the U.S. judicial system, we were disappointed by the judge's decision to dismiss the indictment, which was based on the way in which some evidence had been acquired. A dismissal, I want to make clear, is not an acquittal. And today, I'm announcing that the United States government will appeal this decision. Our Justice Department will file that appeal from the judge's decision next week. Over the last several episodes, we've told you about the politically motivated prosecution of the men of Raven 2-3. We concluded our last episode with Vice President Joe Biden traveling to Iraq in 2010. Biden announced before the international media that the Obama administration would appeal a decision by U.S. District Judge Ricardo Urbina that set the men free. But Biden repudiated Judge Urbina's ruling. He vowed to seek American justice for the shootings in Nisser Square three years earlier. But American justice wouldn't give Biden the result he needed. He'd have to put his thumb on the scales of justice to give the Iraqi government what it needed, scapegoats to blame for Iraqis' justifiable anger at the rising violence in their country. The Raven 2-3 men and their families had no idea that this government-sponsored ordeal would last another decade. Things would escalate as the Justice Department tried and failed to strike backroom plea bargains. The prosecutors knew the men were innocent. They knew they'd have trouble resurrecting a case that had been eviscerated by Judge Urbina. But they needed to deliver some kind of guilty verdict to back up Joe Biden's pledge to Iraqi Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki that the United States would pay its pound of flesh. Here's Kristen Slough talking about the next chapter in our story, the trials, and how things are supposed to work in the American justice system. I guess the main question that I have is, how does how has this changed you as a person? What it, what beliefs that you had before have gone away? I am very skeptical of our government. I believed in our justice system when they came and offered us you know, a, a plea deal to, you know, just accept whatever. And we were like, absolutely not. I mean, this is the United States. When we present the facts in front of a jury of 12 people, they'll look at the facts and we'll be exonerated. Like, why on earth would we take a plea deal for something you didn't do? You know, we're, I'm not going to serve prison time for a crime I didn't commit. And after having gone through... The trials were a wake-up call for all of the families. Here's Nick Slatton's mother, Reba, talking about how the DOJ operates, as recklessly and unethically as it wished, apparently. The prosecution could get away with anything, and our attorneys were very intelligent, very smart. They did a wonderful job, but the judge would shut them down. He, he wouldn't let them put on a case, really. Uh, I mean, they did a good, good job, but I felt like they were fight. it was a one-sided fight, and they were having to fight the system. 
Nick's sister Jessica is an attorney herself. She knows this case better than anyone, and 13 years on, is still shocked at the ongoing violations of her brother's constitutional guarantees. Her brother is in prison for life for a murder he physically could not have committed. That's the killing of the Kia driver that Paul Slough has admitted to over and over again in sworn statements. Federal prosecutors tried Nick three times to get the result they wanted, a life sentence for an innocent man. See, what they needed to do was paint this case as black or white. They needed to say this was a good shoot or it was a bad shoot. Nick is someone who can come in and give evidence that it's a good shoot. And so what they decided to say was, well, our theory is anyone who shot out there that day basically committed um, excessive force, essentially. And then they dropped Nick from the case many, many years ago because the evidence was weak that he did anything wrong because obviously what he was doing was, you know, his job. He fired two shots during an engagement when hundreds of rounds were fired. And then later during the Obama administration, when they tried to put Nick back in the case after Joe Biden went to Iraq and promised them that they would pursue the case, the statute of limitations had run. The prosecutors had to be told by the appellate court that you can't prosecute somebody for time bar charges. So then they vindictively charged him with murdering someone they know he didn't even shoot. That's how this happens. And how he gets convicted is he has a civilian jury and the prosecutors are allowed to make Nick's case about everything else that happened and all the other shots that got fired that have nothing to do with Nick. Now put yourselves in the defendant's shoes for a minute. Imagine if your fate was being decided by a judge who openly admitted to firing his weapon in Vietnam into an open tree line where he could have killed countless innocent men, women, and children. Now imagine that this is the same judge who boasted that he was the favorite attorney of men who were guilty of horrendous war crimes against Vietnamese citizens because of his ability to get them acquitted on a technicality. And finally, imagine that this is the same man who presents himself as a paragon of moral virtue, as someone who stands sinless and blameless before the court despite his own morally dubious behavior during the Vietnam War. But as we have always said, this case only gets curiouser and curiouser. In this episode, we deconstruct the show trials of Raven 2-3, all three of them. And at the end of this episode, we predict that you will be as startled as we were, that the prosecutors actually gave themselves an award for their criminal misconduct against American citizens. We begin with one of the most unusual and lengthy criminal court battles you may ever hear about. It was about. one of the worst killings of innocent in civilians in by U.S. contractors in Iraq. Four guards claimed they were ambushed while escorting diplomatic officials. Washington convicted four former Blackwater security guards in the 2007 shootings and killings of dozens of unarmed Iraqis. From Think Again Studios, this is Raven 2-3, Presumption of Guilt. I'm Gina Keating. It was bad enough that these men were charged again for a gun battle that the D.C. District Court had already ruled wasn't a crime. Like all Americans, Dustin Hurd, Paul Slough, Nick Slatton, and Evan Liberty had a right to a fair and speedy trial. 
but that's not what they got. It took the Justice Department more than three years to get new indictments in the Raven 2-3 case. And remember what New York State Chief Judge Solomon Wachtler famously said, You can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich if that's what you wanted. Three years. So no matter how they had to change the playbook, Joe Biden had promised to deliver American justice for the Iraqi people. Gina, that's a noble goal. But why does it mean sacrificing justice for American people? For Biden's fellow citizens? Paul Slough, Dustin Hurd, Evan Liberty, Nick Slatton. The very men Biden and other U.S. officials relied on to protect them when they visited Iraq. That's right. It wasn't the U.S. or Iraqi military that protected U.S. officials and State Department employees. It was the men of Blackwater. These men were literally willing to take a bullet for Biden and any other American to make sure that they were safe. In fact, everybody forgets that providing this dangerous protection was the origin of this tragedy. The men of Raven 2-3 went into a dangerous war zone to provide protection for a State Department employee. They faced enemy fire and they followed the rules of engagement to protect themselves and the State Department employee. In fact, that State Department employee later said her life was saved as a result of these men's efforts. Tragically, innocent Iraqi lives were lost that day. And hundreds of thousands of more innocent Iraqi lives were lost as a result of the war that Biden himself championed and voted for. Biden's failure to take personal responsibility is the galling part of this press conference. And for him to grandstand that he was looking for justice for each innocent Iraqi life lost to war was hypocritical even by the most cynical political standards. The men of Raven 2-3 were in a breathtakingly violent war supported by Biden. Yet Biden tried to conveniently distance himself, not only from the war, but from any responsibility for the loss of any innocent life. Biden should look in the mirror. He should look at his own record and that of his boss when it comes to looking for people responsible for the death of innocent civilians. For the eight years he served as vice president, Biden and President Barack Obama presided over a vast expansion of the drone program started by President George W. Bush. And they wasted no time in escalating these efforts, despite the knowledge that innocent people would be killed. Just two days after he took office, Obama ordered a drone strike that killed one militant and 10 civilians, including four or five children. The government's own statistics show that at least 400 civilians died in that eight-year drone war, including 10 wedding guests in Yemen and 40 people attending a funeral in Pakistan. But the Center for Investigative Journalism in London puts that number at as many as 535 civilian deaths from the Obama-Biden drone war including at least 60 children in just the first three years of the Obama presidency. So here's a presidential administration that is secretly paying millions of dollars in condolence money to get away with killing hundreds of civilians in its drone wars. 
while publicly condemning four American veterans for casualties that happened in a gun battle with insurgents. And worse, the DOJ finally admitted in its 2017 appellate brief that Raven 2-3 took incoming enemy fire. Yes, you heard that correctly. After a decade of claiming that Raven 2-3 fired wildly at nothing, the DOJ wrote in its court papers that the Blackwater convoy took incoming gunfire, and that's what set off the shootings. But there was no investigation and no prosecution for the civilian deaths that Obama was racking up all over the Middle East. Doesn't take long to listen to the men of Raven 2-3 talk about the deaths of innocent Iraqi people to instantly realize the gigantic contrast between their actual attitudes and the attitudes that the prosecution created out of whole cloth, the ones that demonize them as warmongers. Each time they have to talk about it, it breaks their hearts. Here's Eddie Randall, one of the Raven 2-3 team members who testified at all three trials. Civilians don't understand um, the mentality that you have to have while you're in a, in a war zone, you know, in any kind of combat area. Every time you had to pull that trigger and there was a human being at the other side of it, it's, it, it almost it takes a piece of you with it. How are you supposed to deal with that mentally? Obviously, it would not be true to say that Obama and Biden didn't have their own problems and wrestle with their own consciences over the murdering of hundreds of innocent civilians. But you can't help but notice the contrast between what Eddie Randall says and the way that President Obama and Vice President Biden characterize the deaths. It's more abstract. They speak more in euphemism. It's something they just personally cannot relate to because they've never been in war. They speak about it in the most clinical terms, citing collateral damage as inevitable and trying to strike a balance between the number of terrorists that are killed and the number of innocent civilians. Another decorated military veteran cautioned the Obama administration about its drone policy. Ironically, it's another veteran that is demonized by the press and being hounded by the Department of Justice, General Mike Flynn. Flynn said that, quote, drones do more harm than good. He went on to explain that they were unreliable in targeting enemy combatants. He didn't like the fact that they put too many innocent lives at risk. But you'd never know that from the way General Flynn is portrayed in the media. Still, that's not the only black eye on this administration, which vowed to find a more peaceful path. Hillary Clinton's State Department came under fire from Congress for her handling of an attack by Islamic militants on the American diplomatic compound in Benghazi in 2012. Attorney General Eric Holder got in a hot water with Republicans in Congress for Operation Fast and Furious. That was a secret program that allowed smugglers to bring weapons into Mexico so they could be traced to drug cartels. Operation Fast and Furious came to light when an American DEA agent was murdered with one of the smuggled guns. How many more Border Patrol agents would have had to die as a part of Operation Fast and Furious for you to take responsibility? I'm not claiming to be a perfect person 
or a perfect attorney general. I get up every day and try to do the best job that I can. I have great faith in the people who work in the department. And, you know, that kind of question, um, I, I think, is, is frankly, and again, respect, I, I think that's beneath a member of Congress. Come on. From December 15th until the end of January, you don't learn about a gun walking operation ongoing in your uh, department? And I'm supposed to go home and tell my constituency that that's the facts? Mr. Attorney General, I have a hard time believing that. In the absence of an indication that these inappropriate tactics were used, you have here a tragic death connected to an ongoing federal matter, an ongoing investigation. Um, you know, unfortunately, that happens all, all the time. Holder was too busy to find five minutes to place a call to apologize with the family of the murdered DEA agent, to express just a bit of sympathy. Have you apologized to the family of Brian Terry? Uh, I have not apologized to them, but I certainly regret what happened. Have you even talked to them? Uh, I have not. Yet Biden found time to travel halfway across the world to apologize to an Iraqi government backed by Iranian terrorists and accused innocent American veterans of war crimes. The double standard is sickening. For the men of Raven 2-3, it was a different battle, a battle for their lives. It was three years of mounting legal bills, of veiled threats and bullying by prosecutors. They were hounded by FBI agents who trailed them through their hometowns in search of anything they could use as leverage. Here's Nick Slatton talking about it. It was just obvious that we were being surveilled at some point. They were also driving around the community and asking people questions about me and stuff like that. You know, they were doing their their investigation, trying to dig up dirt on me because they didn't didn't have any evidence, you know, because I'm innocent. That's what they do when they don't have evidence. They try to make you look like a bad guy. Mike, this was an organized campaign to force them to take plea deals so the government didn't have to put on this non-existent case. And Gina, it's about so much more. It's about character. Here are the ultimate questions about friendship, honor, and loyalty. Would you lie about your behavior or accuse your own friends of crimes that they did not commit if it would spare you a lifetime behind prison bars? I know we all would like to respond yes. I don't know if I'd have the courage But these four men did. And until the day they were resentenced, 12 years after the Nassau Square shootings, they were offered plea deals yet again. But they said they'd rather go back to prison than confess to crimes that they did not commit. The government was clearly shocked when these guys wouldn't take their deals. I mean, I think 95% of the people in D.C. take deals from the government. They were in uncharted territory here. So what did they decide to do next? When it became clear that these four men wouldn't turn on each other, the Department of Justice had to put on its case. This was to be a show trial to assuage the anger of the Iraqi people and the guilty consciences of the 76% of Americans who supported the Bush administration's decision to go to war with Iraq. Twelve years later, Americans were sick of the Iraq War, 
sick of the images of the hundreds of thousands of civilians killed and maimed and made homeless by the insurgency and the American occupation. In other words, we as American citizens screwed up and somebody had to pay. But this political theater still required one key role, a willing ally on the bench, a judge who would help them turn a gun battle between American contractors and insurgents and the most dangerous city in the world into looking like the Manson family walking in on the innocent people in Cielo Drive. They also needed a venue that was hostile to the war and especially to the idea of privatizing government functions. For example, hiring military contractors. The prosecutors wanted to pick jurors who knew exactly who Eric Prince was and who despised what Blackwater stood for. And last, and most important, they needed a docile and obedient group of journalists who wouldn't ask too many questions, who wouldn't dare jeopardize their important relationships on the Hill and would helpfully vilify the defendants and the national press. The theater, the federal court in Washington, D.C., the audience, the D.C. press corps, and in his starring role, U.S. District Judge Royce Lamberth. This is Reba Slatton talking about her experience with American justice as practiced by Judge Lamberth. We just thought that the system was going to work for Nick and he was going to be freed. But as we sat day after day and the shenanigans of that courtroom and how it was handled... The judge was terrible, and I know we're not supposed to trash anybody, but I just feel like he wasn't working with the law. I feel like he was emotional, and he was—he would sleep a lot, too. Let's talk about this setup for a bit. Venue, where a case is tried and the jury pool comes from, is critical to every criminal case. The Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution guarantees a speedy and public trial in the state or district where the alleged crime was committed in front of an impartial jury of peers. This case could not be tried in Baghdad under Paul Bremer's Order 17. That's the rule that exempted American military forces and military contractors from Iraqi law. So where to try them? These men had returned to their small towns. Maryville, Tennessee, Sparta, Tennessee, Keller, Texas, and Rochester, New Hampshire. At the time, Donald Ball also was a defendant, and he lived in Salt Lake City, Utah. Ball was the first to surrender in his hometown, and the defense attorneys agreed that the other four men would accept that venue. In fact, they all went to Salt Lake City and surrendered as well. This placed a big problem for the Department of Justice's strategy. The good people of Utah would decide a case based on the facts. They wouldn't care about being involved in some political theater or settling some political scores that had nothing to do with the case. So the DOJ changed the rules. They sent FBI agents to California to collect their star witness, Jeremy Ridgway, and personally escort him to Washington, D.C., When the plane touched down in D.C., the agents cuffed Ridgeway and officially arrested him. 
That was how they established Fenyu in a city where none of the defendants lived and no crime had been committed. Well, if the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, who wrote an amicus brief supporting the defendants, remind us why this obnoxious practice is not just dangerous to democracy, but deeply un-American. The district court allowed the government to prosecute this case thousands of miles away from the proper venue by choreographing the voluntary surrender of a cooperating witness in the District of Columbia and labeling that surrender an arrest. These concerns are of critical importance to NACDL, as one of the main evils that the constitutional venue provisions were designed to prevent was governmental forum shopping. In the Declaration of Independence, for example, the founders condemned King George for extraterritorial forum shopping, namely for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses. In other words, we're regressing. Our democratic government has taken on the role of King George III, putting our warfighters in prison for pretended offenses. Attorney John Mayer has done two tours in Afghanistan. He's a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army Reserves, a former lawyer in the Army Judge Advocate General Corps, and a former Justice Department lawyer. He represented Lieutenant Clint LaRance in a case that was very similar to the Raven 2-3 case and helped get a presidential pardon for Lieutenant LaRance last year. We talked to him about the challenges people like Clint LaRance and the Raven 2-3 men face in our politicized criminal justice system. You have the United States government coming against an individual, and that's where we get the concept of the Bill of Rights, that's where we get the concept of individual liberties and civil liberties, that each American individual life is important. And when his or her government seeks to deprive them of life, liberty, or property, you must be provided due process of law. Excuse me if I'm you know, saying things that you already know, but that's the whole basic foundation of constitutional law. The NACDL is not a conservative group. Its mission is to guarantee that the government respects individual liberties. This group put its reputation on the line to defend four red state Americans who had been demonized in the international press as war criminals. So you'd think the establishment press, which skews liberal, would pay this amicus brief some respect and attention, right? Nope. Crickets. Back before the American Revolution, Mike, you had pamphleteers like Thomas Paine and Ben Franklin to challenge the king on individual liberties and goad the colonies toward democracy. They risked their lives to call the powerful to account. Not anymore. And now we come to the part of the story that is deeply upsetting to me as a journalist. I'd like to say that the D.C. press was bumfuzzled by the government's duplicity. In fact, they were just lazy and too comfortable in D.C.'s Machiavellian fishbowl to do what journalists are supposed to do, question authority and piss off the people in charge. But there were several journalists who understood the gravity of this story and its importance to every American. None of them works in Washington, D.C. When I was trying to understand this story, I found an excellent series by Harrison Thorpe, editor of the Rochester Voice, in Evan Liberty's hometown. He had to work to get the story, and he went into it with the same doubts I had. This is Harrison Thorpe. When I first read about it, I saw the the four faces of the defendants, and 
you know, I, I got to tell you, I said, boy, these, these guys don't, don't look like monsters. I don't know, but I guess they did it because the overwhelming press report, press coverage was all that they had done it, that they were reckless, maverick, Blackwater thugs, and they finally got what was coming to them. Try to get a hold of people that might know them. No one, no one could help me. And then I think it was um, probably in 2016, maybe 17, I go to the Rochester Country Club to do a story on Sims Golf. And Sims Golf is, you know, when they have those big screens up on a wall and then you shoot your putt inside a room and they calculate the yardage. And there was a guy with a t-shirt had Raven 2-3 on it. And I said, and he was the guy I was interviewing about what it's like to play Sims Golf. And I said, uh, so uh, are you related to anybody from uh, Raven 2-3? And he says, yeah, I'm, I'm Brian Liberty. I'm his father. I met his father. And I just said, wow. Can, oh, can we sit down and, and, and have a long talk? And he stopped what he was doing, and we sat down and had a long talk. And you ended up doing a whole series about this. And, I, and, yes. and I, learned, I, I learned a lot from reading your series, and reading your series made me feel like I wasn't crazy. Yeah, and the nice thing for me is, I mean, I wasn't doing it on a gut feel. I was doing it on what I'd been told from Brian, and, and then vetting that out with the rules of law. It's not, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that that 30-year gun sentence was absolutely perverse. So I'm like, it wasn't long before I was all in. These guys got railroaded. Most readers learn the Raven 2-3 story from national outlets that have won multiple Pulitzer Prizes. Good for them. But somewhere along the way, the reporters forgot that it's the role of the American press to watch the watchers. No one understood that duty better than my fellow St. Louisan, Joseph Pulitzer. Pulitzer gave a speech in 1907 that summed up the duty and privilege of journalism when he retired as publisher of my hometown newspaper, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Our republic and its press will rise or fall together, he said. Journalists should always oppose the privileged classes and public plunderers, never lack sympathy for the poor, always remain devoted to the public welfare, and never be afraid to attack wrong, whether by the predatory plutocracy or predatory poverty. And if anyone failed the men of Raven 2-3, their families and our democracy, it was what Pulitzer called the cynical, mercenary, demagogic national press. Nobody was watching the Department of Justice. Nobody reported on the laws broken by Assistant U.S. Attorney T. Patrick Martin and his team, or the errors committed by Judge Lamberth. Nobody reported on the gush of taxpayer money spent on an endless, pointless prosecution. I will say that the one outlet that truly did act like a watchdog and did their best to report was The Intercept. Now, let's be clear. The Intercept... 
They're no friends of Raven 2-3 or Blackwater. In fact, they're their leading critics. But they were equally critical of the behavior of the Obama-Biden administration and their drone program. We're not looking for an amen choir here. We just want an adversarial press. I always look at The Intercept as a great example. I think they have it wrong when it comes to Raven 2-3, but it's not out of any ideological axe to grind, other than a seemingly reflex suspicion against anybody involved in the war effort. But The Intercept applies that suspicion equally to all players, regardless of political party. For that, they deserve praise. Unfortunately, there were not outlets like The Intercept covering the actual trial for the men of Raven 2-3. At this point, the public had largely lost interest, and the Washington Post masthead gets it right. Democracy dies in darkness. Because if people paid attention to this trial, they might have thought they stumbled upon a film by Truffaut. It was a complete theater of the absurd. Let me tell you a little bit about our starring cast. We'll start with Judge Royce Lamberth. Here's his description of the lead prosecutor, T. Patrick Martin. Lamberth called him a liar. Not somebody loose with the facts, not somebody who exaggerates, but a liar. And when it comes to the Keystone cops who prosecuted the Blackwater men, the phrase, a pox on both their houses, comes to mind. It was a mutual hatred society. Because Martin's colleagues the other lawyers in the DOJ, held Lambert in even less esteem. Vindictive and incompetent was the precise phrase they used to describe the self-important judge. And worse, a federal appeals court agreed with them. And as you will hear in this episode, they more than earned these descriptions throughout the trials. Martin lied more than a two-timing contestant on The Bachelor being confronted by one of his girlfriends, And Lamberth, boy was he mean, and vindictive, and incompetent, and so much more that represents everything wrong with the judicial system. The irony here is that some 40 years earlier, Lamberth was a young officer in the Judge Advocate General Corps, basically an army lawyer. In our research, we came across a story he apparently loves to tell, because it appears everywhere. Two things stand out about this story. First, Lamberth recounts that he successfully defended six army rangers who had bragged about killing and mutilating some North Vietnamese soldiers they caught bicycling down the Jolly Trail. The mutilation was horrific. The rangers said they slit their enemies' bodies open and stuffed them with rice from 100-pound burlap bags they were carrying on their bicycles. It was supposed to be some sort of calling card. It's also a war crime. But Lambert successfully argued that if the army couldn't produce the bodies, the rangers couldn't prove themselves innocent. No bodies, no crime. Remember that when you hear how he ruled against Paul Slough, Dustin Hurd, Evan Liberty, and Nick Slatton. The second irony is that Lambert recalls with great levity that he freaked out when the engine quit on the Huey that was flying him and the rangers back into the jungle to search for the bodies. An engine failure caused the Huey to fall from the sky about 100 feet off the ground. 
Lamberth assumed the crash meant that they had been shot down. He and the rangers fired like hell into the tree line at no discernible target and near a village full of civilians. Judge Lamberth was not assigned to the case of Raven 2-3 in the usual way after Judge Urbina retired in 2012. That random assignment fell to Judge Richard Leone. But 20 minutes after the clerk stamped the complaint with Leone's initials, Judge Lamberth reassigned the case to himself. We contacted Judge Leone and the court clerk to get to the bottom of this reassignment. We're still waiting for a return call. One of the defense lawyers suggested that Lamberth took the case because he took Jeremy Ridgway's guilty plea. All right, but Judge Lamberth was then 69 years old. He was about to take what's called senior status, basically retire, in the summer of 2013. That was a full year before the Raven 2-3 case was scheduled to go to trial. But the media was going to make this one a barn burner of a case. He was ready for his spotlight. He made it clear that he was not going to let anyone steal it, and he wouldn't stand for any delays. This case is going to end on my level while I'm still alive, he told the defense attorneys. And to be honest, it wasn't clear how long that would be. Judge Lamberth had health problems that would require major surgery. Dustin Hurd's father, Stacy, said Lamberth was so inattentive that the families gave him a nickname. They called him Sleepy, because he would just sit up there and go to sleep. He wasn't listening. He would be sitting up there, and he'd just doze off. Here's Reba Slatton, who had the joy of watching Judge Lamberth snore and sleep on the bench for two trials, only to put her son away in prison for life. I feel like he was emotional, and he was he would sleep a lot, too. Maybe he's sick. I don't know. I think he is sick. Well, actually, they had to take some time off because he was sick from the trial. During, during the trial, he had to have some procedures and stuff. With all of his pomposity and cartoonish incompetence, Royce Lamberth seems like he jumped right out of the pages of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. But then again, if Lamberth didn't exist, you'd have to invent him. Because without him... Patrick Martin and his minions could never have gotten away with the ethical and actual crimes they pulled off at all three trials. So we wanted to know more. Who is this judge? We read the trial transcript. We tried to interview people who had written books and academic papers on him. But amazingly, nobody would talk to us. The Raven 2-3 defense attorneys refused to talk about Judge Lamberth. Even about the more ridiculous and outrageous things I found in the transcripts. There was the time he told a prospective juror that she was a poor excuse for a citizen because her daycare closed an hour before court let out. The time he threatened to jail Dustin Hurd's lawyer for showing a photo of Dustin's children and wife to the jury, or even mentioning that Dustin had a wife and children and had never been in trouble with the law. There were his constant comparisons, from the bench, mind you, between his one-year stint in Vietnam and the hellhole that was Baghdad in 2007. How is this dotard still on the bench? Then we found an article written in 2004 by a George Washington University law school professor named Richard Pierce. The title is 
Judge Lambert's reign of terror at the Department of the Interior. It was hard to choose just one passage to describe the cornucopia of Lambert's incompetence, but this is the gist of Pierce's argument. Oh yeah, Pierce wouldn't talk to us on the record either, but he gave us permission to quote from his paper. I was initially puzzled by the government's timidity in dealing with Judge Lamberth's abusive behavior. Most of the government lawyers and former government lawyers with whom I discussed the case do not share my surprise and bewilderment. They told me that the government often declines to seek review of action by district judges that are clearly unlawful and abusive for fear of reprisal by the judges against either the lawyers or their agencies. They describe this tendency as particularly strong when the judge is a member of the District Court of the District of Columbia. The judge has a reputation as ruthless and vindictive, and the primary costs of the abusive behavior are borne by government employees, rather than the government itself. He routinely uses threats to induce lawyers, witnesses, and other government employees to take positions he favors and to refrain from taking positions he disfavors. Two years after Pierce wrote his article, the D.C. Court of Appeals took the rare step of throwing Lambert off the Department of Interior case for bias. That has happened only three times since 1893. Three times in 127 years, in case you're wondering. Lambert was born in Texas, but literally has spent his entire career in Washington, D.C., He actually shows up sometimes at political functions in a cowboy hat and boots. What do you call folks like that in Texas, Gina? All hat and no cattle? Another part of his carefully manicured personality is that he's a shoot-from-the-hip kind of guy. Other people think of him more as a loose cannon. But as one attorney told us off the record, Lambert doesn't care, just as long as you consider him heavy artillery. Lambert started his long civil service career as a federal prosecutor in 1974. Ronald Reagan appointed him to the bench in 1987 after reading a news article about how Washington civil rights lawyers hated him. Reagan mistakenly believed that here was a maverick. But this guy was no maverick. Civil rights lawyers had good reason to still hate him. Gina, my dad was a defense attorney. I could almost understand it if Lambert was operating from a moral compass that looked out for the underdog and saw himself as a voice for the voiceless. But the reality is the opposite. In one of his more recent decisions, he displayed a reckless disregard for justice that was divorced from common sense, even by his lunatic standards. Gina, you're much better at this stuff than I am, so uh, could you give us a quick summary? And trigger alert, this is a heartbreaking story, followed by an even more heartless verdict. In 2016, Lamberth barred the family of a schizophrenic man from suing San Antonio police officers who beat and tased him to death. The group of seven cops even sicked a police dog on 30-year-old Pierre Abernathy in his family's front yard as they begged for his life. 
Pierre's neighbor testified that Abernathy, who was African-American, curled up in a ball and cried out for his mother as the officers beat him for 15 minutes straight. Abernathy's brother heard the officers shout, Yeah, get some. He died before he got to the hospital. The question before Lamberth, did the police use reasonable force on Pierre Abernathy or did the deadly beating violate his civil rights? Astonishingly, Lambert sided with the cops because of Pierre Abernathy's, quote, near superhuman ability to resist. In light of the context in which the officers found themselves in their attempts to apprehend and detain Abernathy, the court concludes that the defendants deployed force that was neither clearly excessive nor clearly unreasonable. Can you imagine if that case was decided in the post-George Floyd world? In fact, I hope that there are journalists right now reviewing this case, complete with its frightening reference to a black man as having near-superhuman ability to resist. Those sound like words directly from Jim Crow. As cozy as Lamberth was with the San Antonio PD, he was the opposite when it came to the Clinton administration. He resorted to all types of schoolyard bullying tactics. Rather than get into the details, let's just remember what Clinton advisor and political guru Jim Carville said about it all. As for his opinion on Lamberth, Carville crystallized how many people regarded him. Lamberth, Carville said, is an asshole. Okay. Hey, is everybody on? I'm on. I'm here. Yep. Okay. When we first began this podcast, we went directly to Blackwater founder Eric Prince. Okay, so I'm going to mute, ask the question, mute myself, and if you, like I said, if you want to start over, just go ahead and do that. Is that all right? Okay. We felt that Blackwater was not represented fairly in the press. We wanted to get his perspective on the source square. It turns out, there were legitimate reasons for him to keep his distance, at least publicly, from the criminal case. Blackwater kind of came Kleenex, right? The, um, the generic term for an armed security contractor. And dozens of times we'd be called and said, hey, some of your guys got hit here or some of them were involved in a shooting there. And when we investigated it, because, of course, we were able to track all the vehicles in real time, we'd, uh, we'd go back to whoever called us and said, well, that wasn't our people at all because we didn't have any vehicles within 50 miles of there and they figured out it was someone else but for the media who were not as um not as honest or objective in uh, in reporting the goings-on uh of the conflict they immediately um would lump it into one basket i'll tell you who got lumped into one basket the men of Raven 2-3 got lumped into eric's politically radioactive basket and went to prison for it the jury foreperson who voted to convict Nick in his third trial told the Washington Post not to print his or her name for fear of retribution from Blackwater. By this time, the company hadn't even existed for almost a decade. So I don't buy Eric's excuses. He owed these men and their families more than the insignificant amount that he and his company spent on their defense. He supposedly commissioned a report on the Nisser Square shootings that showed that some of the victims were shot with AK-47 rounds, not American bullets. 
That report was done by the same prosecutor that the U.S. government hired to prosecute Saddam Hussein. So why wasn't it handed over to the defense? I tried to track it down for a year with absolutely no help from Eric, and I got nowhere. So it's maddening to hear this. Look, I remember um, just before uh, the Mr. Square happened, uh, the former commander of all U.S. forces in Europe, a guy named uh, Jim Jones, a four-star Marine, they'd done a big study uh, trying to figure out what was wrong with the Iraqi security forces, and his report said that the Iraqi Minister of Interior has been completely penetrated and corrupted, and it is a sectarian nest of vipers, I believe was the quote from, from that report. So we knew that. We, we knew what we were up against. But again, you know, the sad thing is the when the Missouri Square event happened, State Department was caught very flat-footed. Instead of just saying, uh, this is an unfortunate event, there was a lot of shooting um, both ways. We had, a, we had a, a damaged vehicle that was not able to drive off the square from incoming fire. And this is what happens when you have terrorists that hide amongst civilians and drive car bombs into our vehicles. Instead of standing up and defending um, this State Department diplomatic security team, instead they threw it on contractors like the cowards that they are. And in this, you know, this tsunami and an unfortunate prosecution happened against the guys. Here's what it comes down to. Stacked up against this display of awesome power and bottomless incompetence, you have four former soldiers with high school educations, and presumably the massive fortune and might of Blackwater founder Eric Prince and his private military empire, right? Well, sort of. The four lawyers who defended Dustin Hurd, Evan Liberty, Paul Slough, and Nick Slatton in the first trial shared a pot of somewhere between a million dollars and four million dollars provided by Prince and Blackwater's liability insurance policy. I couldn't get a straight answer from Prince about the exact amount. What a shocker. But $1 million for four defendants for a 13-year legal battle in two countries against the government's unlimited resources. On the cost issue, I talked to a few private trial attorneys, and they said the cost of a half dozen government attorneys, three full trials, 46 foreign witnesses brought to the U.S., without background checks, I might add, and other expenses total up to probably 40 to $50 million. I've been trying to get the real numbers from the Department of Justice for more than a year now. They've completely ignored my FOIA requests. This is what I've gotten from the DOJ for more than a year. FOIA officer. Hi, is this the FOIA office for the DOJ Criminal Division? Um... No, but I can transfer you to um, the uh, criminal division. That'd be great. What's the number in case I get disconnected? So that number is... Okay. Can you transfer me or do I have to call them? I can transfer you. Thank you, sir. No problem. We're sorry. Due to a large volume of calls, all of our analysts are assisting other callers. Please try your call again later. Thank you. So I asked Prince why he hasn't done more for his men, fundraisers with his rich friends, or cut some kind of package deal with the law firms that review his multi-billion dollar war profiteering contracts. I mean, anything. 
Their families are just about broke from having to pay for their men's food in prison. That's right, their food, and for basics like toothpastes and razors. It's a dollar a minute for a phone call and 25 cents for a 500-character email. That's your Bureau of Prisons at work. Thanks, Joe Biden, for that 1994 crime bill that helped privatize the prisons. This is me explaining that to Prince and his second-in-command, Bill Matthews, a year ago. Yeah, I mean, it's 12 years. It's 12 years of, of, you know, legal work. And, I, you know, in a way, I, I understand what they're saying. The government dragged this thing out probably for this reason. But, you know, well, we just we need to get some, you know, you guys know a lot of people. And, and, you know, I'm not asking you to, like, shell out money. But if you can, like, rally some people to help these guys, it would really be great. We will try. Well, Mike, I'm still waiting, and so are Dustin, Paul, Nick, and Evan. They were abandoned not only by their government and their countrymen, but by the guy they idolized as a warrior and a leader and a patriot, Eric Prince. They were about to ride into battle for their lives with only each other to count on. Raven 2-3 is a production of Think Again Studios. It's written by Gina Keating and Mike Flaherty. Our producers are Ashton Smith, Gina Keating, and Mike Flaherty. Executive producers are Chai Ling, Lindsay Fellows, and Valerie McGowan. Mitchell Weinbaum and Jonathan Compton edited this episode. Mitchell also serves as our associate producer along with Kyle Hartford and Tina Graff. Our actors are Kevin Miller, Kurt Brinkman, Elizabeth Benz, Paul Keegan, and Jaden Marquez. Lindsay Fellows and Aaron Fullen supervise the music. Our theme song is performed by Chloe Caroline. Thanks to Anne and Neil Corkery for their kindness and generosity. Finally, we owe a debt to our men and women in uniform. Thank you for defending our freedom so that strangers may one day enjoy them as well. For more information about this podcast, go to thinkagain.me. There you can find additional research and primary resources regarding the case of Raven 2-3. You can learn about future episodes and receive updates as events continue to evolve. You can also learn more about our future projects, as well as award-winning films, music, and books created by our team. Thanks to everyone who donated so much of your time and talent to this passion project.